Now then, with a a view to God's help, let's uh, turn to that second passage that we read from God's Word. The Gospel according to John, and chapter 1. From the reading, you'll remember that Philip told Nathaniel that he had just discovered the true uh, Christ of God, a man called Jesus from Nazareth. Nathaniel is very sceptical that anything good can come from Nazareth. But in verse 47, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And that brings us to our text. In verse 51, where Jesus says to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter, from now on, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. As I said a moment ago, we're picking up essentially tonight where we left off uh, last Lord's Day evening. And we're considering this unusual and to some extent a a mysterious meeting between uh, Jesus of Nazareth and this man called Nathaniel from a small village called Cana in Galilee. And the strange thing is to Nathaniel, although he has just met this man for the first time, he knows that Christ knows him and knows everything about him. Christ, first of all, made plain that he knew where he was even before they met. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Remember from last Sunday night, the fig tree is important. It was a a secret place, a place of meditation and prayer. So Jesus knew that Nathanael was there. And as well as knowing his location, he also knew Nathanael's spiritual situation. That Nathanael had been convicted by the urgent preaching of John the Baptist, which was calling people to repentance and to prepare for the coming of the Christ. And obviously, as he was under the fig tree praying, he was anxious concerning his own soul. That's what happens when God's truth comes to us in its purity, coming to us as sinners. We begin to be aware of our sin and of our need. And he is asking for God's mercy and for forgiveness of sin. And then it becomes a wonderful thing when he meets uh, this Jesus for the first time, 
who immediately, before he says anything else, pronounces him to be a real believer. An Israelite indeed, not by birth, not by descent, by nationality or by heritage, but spiritually a real child of Jacob in whom there is no deceit. In other words, I know your sincerity. As you wrestled with God under that fig tree, as you asked for pardon, as you prayed for renewal, God heard you, and I pronounce you clean in the sight of God. By the way, to do such a thing is another evidence that our Lord was indeed God, manifest in the flesh, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel, of course, is overcome by that. And he recognises that Philip was definitely right when he said that we have found the one of whom Moses prophesied and the other prophets prophesied. That this man, just standing face to face with him, was none other than the Messiah of God, long promised and long waited for. Not just that, he actually rises so high as to pronounce him the Son of God. It's a marvellous insight that he got, given to him by the Spirit of God. You are the King of Israel, indeed you are the Son of God. Now we would expect, in a way, that Nathaniel's cup uh, would be full with that, that he would be satisfied, that's enough for him, it would be enough for you and for me, for God to assure us of our acceptance before him. But Christ has far more to give Nathaniel than that. And sometimes when we're low and distressed, God does fill our cup to overflowing. And he very much does that here. You'll notice that the Lord doesn't leave it there. He goes on to say something else. From now on, Nathaniel, you'll see more than that. You won't just know that I am omniscient, that I know everything, that I can pronounce you clean. You are amazed because I saw you under the fig tree. You are amazed because I knew what was going on in your heart. You'll only see more than this. As time goes on, he says, you will see heaven open. And you will see God's angels ascending and descending upon me, the Son of Man. Now before we look at that and try and open it up and understand it, let's just first back up a little bit and see that this is obviously a very clear reference to the account that we read from the life of Jacob. Just to fill in the background a little bit, I I did before the reading, but perhaps a little bit more. Uh, Jacob left the family home, and he left it under a cloud. He had uh, tried to do the right thing, um, but he had done it in the wrong way. And God wants the right thing done in the right way. He did the right thing the wrong way. And so he left under his father's displeasure, and also his brother's murderous rage. Rebecca, his mother, actually arranged for him to go up to his uncle because if he didn't leave the house, 
his brother would kill him. Now Jacob knew that God had promised him many things, that he would be the heir of Isaac's household, that he would inherit uh, many spiritual blessings and privileges. But as so often happens in the Christian life, the promise and the reality that you face are often miles apart. Later on, Joseph was promised a similar thing as a young man, that one day his family would come to him and bow down before him for his help and blessing. short while later, he's being sold as a nothing into Egypt and he's cast into a dungeon. There's such a contrast between what God says and the providence that he then gives you. It's almost impossible to reconcile it. Of course, it calls for faith to believe that God will actually work it out in his time and in his way. Jacob is in a similar situation. Far from being an heir, as he had been promised, he's leaving the family home with nothing. Years later, as an old man, he looks back at this event and he says, I crossed the Jordan with my staff in my hand. As much as to say that's all I had. Nothing. A shirt on his back and the staff in his hand. And when he lay down that night at his, at his first uh, port of call in Luz, that ancient Canaanite shrine, I've no doubt that he lay down with many anxious thoughts. Like, why is my life like this? And how will I survive in a strange land with, with people I don't know? Will I ever really come back? And, of course, above all, where is God in this? How am I to understand the the situation that God has now placed me in? How, How can I understand that in connection with all that he's been to me and all that he's promised? And probably in connection with that, can I... Can I be a real believer at all? Because Satan always takes us there. He takes us there. I mean, it's it's one thing to have all these questions, and then Satan comes along and says, "Well, why are you stopping at that? Why don't Why don't you just make the final leap and say, well, 'Well, am I really a believer at all? Is this the kind of situation a believer would find himself in? Surely not.' And as he lay down." That night in Luz, with a stone for a pillow, again just exaggerating his utter destitution, God sends him a dream. It's a famous dream. Everyone's heard of Jacob's ladder. Although the word ladder, perhaps, doesn't really quite bring out the idea in the Hebrew. It's not a ladder as as we think of a ladder. It's actually a stairway, which is where the idea of a stairway to heaven comes from. He sees a stairway that is going up all the way from where he is himself, as it were, just going right up to heaven. And he has a vision of the Lord at the top of it. There's a a glory of some kind which he knows to be the Lord. And of course he himself is at the bottom of the stairway. And the amazing thing, well, that's amazing in itself, but... The amazing thing is that there is a constant traffic on the stairway to heaven. The angels of God are on it all the time. And they are ascending and descending on this stairway, passing each other. 
probably multitudes of them, myriads ascending and descending on the stairway. Now, it would be worthwhile to look at that on its own, obviously, but that's for another time. But it's sufficient to say for now that there are two main messages that God is communicating to Jacob by means of the vision. The first is, as he actually says later on, because he explains his vision with his words, I am with you. I am with you. And how precious these words are. And how precious the ways in which God often just drops them into our own souls. Sometimes when we most wonder and when we most question that presence, he says, I am with you. Whether you're aware of it or not, Jacob, whether you see me or not, it's neither here nor there. I want you to believe that I am with you. I'm aware of you and of your situation. And as well as that, not only am I with you, but I am with you as your helper and your protector. And hence these celestial beings constantly going up and down on the stairway that links himself to God. Unknown to you, Jacob, there is a constant ministry around you personally. Just as there is around every believer of God. As we read in Psalm 34, and as we sang, the angel of God, the angel there, although it's singular, just represents the whole angelic order. The angels of God, in other words, encompass God's people. They encamp around them. They have a ministry of service to the people of God. In Hebrews 1, uh, the writer speaks about the angels and he describes them as ministering spirits or serving spirits and he tells us that they are sent forth to minister or to serve the heirs of salvation. Christian people. They are constantly ministering around them. Actually, even before they become Christians, uh, because they are still heirs of salvation then. So the angelic order are constantly serving God's people. And it's interesting to note, and I'm sure Jacob noted it, and I'm sure God was conveying it to him, that the angels here are described as ascending and descending. Now it may seem a minor point, and I wouldn't like to lay too much stress on it, But we would expect it to say that the angels were descending and ascending. Because they begin their ministry in heaven, of course. They fulfill it on the earth and they return to heaven. But lo and behold, they're described as ascending and descending. And probably the reason for that is just to convey to us and to Jacob that the angels are already fulfilling that ministry. In other words, they have already been encompassing him and protecting him, even though he has not been aware of it. When the angels ascend, it's because they have done something and they are returning to God. When they descend, it's because they have received a commission which they are going to fulfill. So already, God's help is with God's child. I am with you 
and I am with you to help you and to protect you. Now I'll say something more about that, God willing, in a little while. But so far, all that is straightforward enough, well, in one respect. There's lots of complications connected with it, but we can understand it. But what the Lord says to Nathaniel goes further than that. And it goes deeper than that. He doesn't say to Nathaniel that you will see heaven open and the angels of God and descending and descending upon the stairway. Notice that he says you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, who is, of course, himself. The Son of Man is the designation Christ uses most often for himself, for reasons I can't go into just now. But what he is effectively saying is this, that I am the stairway. I am the stairway. And the promise to Nathaniel is that from now on, as you go on in in this new Christian life that you're starting, having recognized me, confessed me, and embraced me, he says, from now on, he says, there will be a process of heaven opening. As you listen to me and follow me, heaven will open for you, and you'll see God's angels mysteriously in connection with me, binding you to heaven and heaven to you. Now, I mentioned last week, and and let me just stress it this week too, that what Christ says here to Nathaniel is not just for himself. I suppose he receives it because he needs it particularly, but the you here in the Bible, most assuredly I say to you, verse 51, is actually you plural. So he's not just speaking to Nathaniel, he's speaking to the other small group of disciples that he's just gathering around himself. But do we not widen that out and say that he's speaking to us too? This is a timeless living word of God. And it's coming to you as though it was written today, because that's the quality that belongs to the word of God. So Christ is saying to you, if, if you are committing yourself to the Lord, he says, I'm telling you that from now on, As your Christian life progresses, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Right then, with the Lord's help, let's just take a closer look at that. First of all, you'll see an open heaven. What could that mean? Heaven can be opened I suppose, in different ways. For example, on one or two occasions in the Bible, heaven was opened to people's vision. For example, when Stephen was being stoned to death, the first Christian martyr, we're told that he looked up to heaven and the heavens opened. It's as though the The heaven, the second heaven, as the Jews refer to it, the the cosmos, it's as though the scroll of the cosmos was just uh, rolled aside and he saw into what the Jews called the third heaven, the dwelling place of God. And there he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
a vision of heaven. What a wonderful vision it was too. Uh, Jesus standing in compassion, in sympathy, in prayerful intercession. That's a vision. And just on rare occasions, such a vision was given. But there's no indication that that kind of vision was ever given to Nathaniel or to the rest of the apostles, and indeed to us. The open heaven means something different from that. It's not open to our vision, but it's a heaven that's opened to our understanding. Because naturally, heaven is full of mystery. And the default position, sadly, since the fall, since we fell, and since sin destroyed us, is that everything up there is is lost to us. We don't know God. We don't know what God is really like. We don't know what his dwelling place is really like. We don't know what heaven is like. We, we don't know any of these things. We don't even know what the way of salvation actually is. We don't understand it. We're just blind to these things. There's a, there's a lack of communication. Heaven is there. Holiness and purity and light and splendor. And here is darkness and ignorance, sin and death. But heaven open means that these mysteries are going to be opened out to us. Take the mystery of God himself. Like I said, by nature he's hidden. And even Christ tells us in the Bible that God dwells in light unapproachable whom no man has seen or can see. No wonder. No wonder. How could as mere mortals, especially as sinners, really see and know the one true living holy God. How could we? The other mystery, I suppose, is God's plan of salvation. It's all dark to us. Yes, it's written in the Bible. I'll come to that in a second. But really, the Bible refers to this plan of salvation as a mystery hidden from the foundation of the world. Yes, as history moved on, bits of it are revealed in types and symbols, shadows and sacrifices, priesthoods and temples and altars. But really, it is shrouded as much as revealed in types and symbols. We need God's salvation to be opened up to view. We need to know what God is really like and we need to know the way in which God saves sinners if he does so at all. So we need heaven open to our understanding and Christ is certainly telling Nathaniel and you and me that he will open it up to our understanding. He will show us who God is, what God is actually like, and how God saves sinners. He'll do that. There's one other way in which heaven can be opened to us, and that's opened to our actual entrance. If you're a Christian tonight, you have a hope. I don't mean by that just 
the world's kind of hope, I mean a genuine hope based on knowledge that you'll enter heaven one day. Again, the default position is a closed heaven. That's a default position because we shut it against ourselves. That's why the Garden of Eden uh, was slammed shut. Its entrance guarded with cherubim, a flame of fire, a sword which guarded the way to the tree of life. You can't get in. You can never get into the presence of God. You can never enjoy his company and his fellowship. You can never have his life. Never. Because you've polluted yourself and you've destroyed your own soul. There is no right of access into heaven. It's as though there is a gate there and on it written is without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And whose hands can ever be clean? And whose heart can ever be pure? Who can ever be without deceit? Who can ever be without lies or cheating or anything of that kind? Nobody. So the gates of righteousness are shut. That is the default position. You can't see heaven, you can't understand it, and you can't access it. But, here's the glory of it all. I am a stairway to heaven. I am a stairway to heaven. Christ is the one who mysteriously links a holy heaven and a sinful earth. How does he do that? Well, let me see first that he does it mysteriously in his person. I'm going to distinguish here, as the theologians always did, between who he is and what he does. Let me first of all say something about who he is. You'll notice that in his person, he links heaven and earth. There was never a man like this. Never. No man spake like this. That's what the people said. Nobody ever spoke like this. The reason nobody spoke like this was because there was never anybody like this. This is a God-man. This is God incarnate. Jesus was God walking on the earth intertwining in himself a divine nature and a human nature. Nathaniel here calls him the Son of God. Christ calls himself in the same passage the Son of Man. Both are true. He is divine and he is human. It's only by joining these two natures that he can ever be a means of taking us to God. That is a wonderful thing. That, that requires another sermon. But only by being who he is, a God-man, can he actually bring man back to God. So he becomes in his own, in the constitution of his own actual person, he becomes a kind of walking picture of what he's doing. That is, joining heaven and earth together. The wonderful thing is that there is a stairway, and let us be quite clear that this is the only stairway. There can never be any knowledge of God outside of Christ. Never any way of access to God outside of Christ. No way of salvation outside of Christ. As he said famously to the apostles on the night in which he was betrayed, I am the way, the truth 
and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's not as though there's one stairway for the Far East, another stairway for the West, another stairway for the Middle East, a stairway for Muslims, for Confucians, uh, for rationalists. There's one for the whole earth. And that single stairway is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, we can widen that out and say that there is absolutely no communication of any kind ever between heaven and earth apart from what comes through Christ. He is the link. No Christ, then no God, and no heaven. Let's make no mistake about that. Sad to say in some churches it's now customary to dilute this message and to start saying that there may be other ways to God. Well, if they are, then the whole thing is a waste of time, really. The urgency of the situation is that there is one stairway and you need to get there and to climb it. So he links heaven and earth in his own person. But then he links heaven and earth in his work. In other words, by what he does. And we could say that that was his whole mission. That's his purpose for coming into the world as a God-man. He had one thing to do, and that's to reconcile sinners to God. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. His mission was to reconcile sinners on earth to a holy God in heaven. Paul puts it like this, a text you probably know well, some of you anyway, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Uh, The Greek language is different uh, from the English, from Gaelic, from every language has its own distinctives. You can translate that a little bit differently because that expression in Christ can be shifted in the sentence. It can either mean God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself or God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In a way, it doesn't matter much. If you pursue both avenues, they pretty much come to the same thing. But there is a subtle difference in the emphasis. Listen to the first one. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The emphasis there is on the fact that God was operative in Christ. God was working when Christ was working. God was speaking when the Christ was speaking. And in everything that the Christ was doing, God was in him with the objective of reconciling the world to himself. That's the emphasis. Now read it the other way. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. The emphasis this time isn't so much on the fact that God was in Christ, which is still true, but that he was reconciling a world to himself in the Christ. In other words, the focus is on the meeting place. That whatever God is doing for a fallen sinful world, he's doing it in the Christ. The only meeting place. Again, the same thing. It is the only place where we can meet God. That is, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you be sure of that, that if you, even tonight, by the, by the grace and mercy of God, if you call upon God's name for the first time meaningfully, in Christ and through Christ, you'll meet God. You'll come to know your Father. He, he is the person that makes the link. And the link is nowhere else. But in Christ you'll find God. You'll find the fullness of God and all that God has to give. And be in no doubt about that. Let your faith lay hold upon that. That the fullness of all God gives sinners is found in Christ. He is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now then, how does he do it? Well, first of all, can we say as a prophet, which Christ was, he brings us the true knowledge of God. He brings it into this world. Now, there's no doubt that he had been doing that in fragments down through the years. Holy men of God were sent ever since the fall, really, bringing bits of revelation about how God would accept sinners. But these prophets were sent by Christ too. It's down this stairway that they came. Moses descended the stairway to give us the law. David descended the stairway to give us the Psalms. Isaiah descended the stairway to give us such marvellous pictures of the coming Christ. And so it goes on. But the time came when Christ himself came from heaven to the earth. With the purpose of, well, dying for us, yes. I'll come to that in a minute. But the purpose of revealing God. If you just turn back in your Bible to chapter 1 here. And verse 18. John 1 verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. And then suddenly, referring to Christ, the only begotten Son, who is... Now, this is a wonderful expression because this is where he dwells permanently as the second person. He is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. This word declared is an interesting word. In the Greek language, it means to explain. It's the word that uh, we, we actually take directly into English as exegesis. He has explained. Now, isn't that a wonderful expression? It's as though we, we, can't, get, we can't get at God, but, but God will get to us. And in spite of the fact that we're sinners... God has sent his son into the world to explain him. To, to give us the real insight into what he's actually like. See, by nature we have hard thoughts of God. We think that God is like this and like that. Like the man in the parable, we think of God as an austere man. We think of him like Pharaoh, trying to make bricks without straw. Now, <clears throat> make no mistake, God is holy, righteous, and inflexibly so. <clears throat> Always just, always pure. But Christ wants us to know the heart of the Father. And even though he dwells in the bosom of the Father, down he comes, mediating between heaven and earth 
to declare God to us. And uh, the more he speaks, the more he declares him. On the night on which he was betrayed, he started to speak of God as a father. And Philip said, show us the father. And, and it sufficeth us, it's sufficient. Show us the father and we'll be glad with that. Give us an insight into what it means for God to be your Father. And you'll remember that Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been so long with you and you still don't know me? Do you not really fully understand who I am? Because he who has seen me has seen the Father. Not that they are the same person, but to see one is to see the other. What is my father like? He's like me. I am like the father. Because I and my father are one. We have the same will, the same purpose, the same love, the same affection, the same standards, the same holiness, the same purity. And to see the way that I care for you is to see the way that your father cares for you. To see the way that I love your immortal soul is to see the way that your Father loves your immortal soul. He that has seen me has seen the Father. It's strange how sometimes people put a distance between the Father and the Son. And the devil will do it too. He'll say that the Father is remote, uh, but the Son is near. No, friends. When the Son declared the Father, he declared the Father as the one who is so near that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I suppose you say with me tonight, show us the Father and it suffices us. And uh, as we go on in the Christian life, we discover more and more of what the fatherhood of God actually means. The more we discover of God, the more beautiful he becomes. There's no doubt about that. The more we discover, the more beautiful he becomes, and he who has seen Christ has seen the Father. So he comes down from heaven to enlighten us on the mystery of what God is like. Moses saw it, he glimpsed it, but Christ brings it in its fullness. But Christ also, of course, comes to bring us a knowledge of the way of salvation. Like I said in the Old Testament, you could see it there through a glass, darkly, wrapped up in enigmatic types and symbols. But the Lord Jesus tells us clearly what that way of salvation is. He who dwells in the bosom of the Father unites a human nature to himself. He lives a perfect life for our sake, and he dies an obedient death for our sake too. And the result is that if you believe in him, his righteousness is put in your account, just as your sin was put on his account. It's as simple, as wonderful, and as deep and profound as that. God absorbs the sin and its punishment into himself, and he imparts his righteousness to you. That's the only meeting place, the only meeting place between your sinful soul and a pure and holy God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And 
the identity of, of that way of salvation is still being declared by Christ from heaven. As Paul says when he sends his ambassadors, and God willing I'm speaking to you in that capacity tonight, when he sends his ambassadors, his ambassadors are called upon to plead with you and to beseech you in Christ's stead, in place of Christ, as though he himself was beseeching you, be reconciled with God. Because he made him who knew no sin to become sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. So as a prophet, he brings the true knowledge of God down from heaven onto the earth. Again, as a priest, he opens the way back into God's presence. He does that by dying for us on the cross, which the writer to the Hebrews calls opening up a new and living way. If you're going to climb this stairway to heaven, there's a door by which you enter it. Um, The door by which you find the stairway is the cross. It's as simple as that. I am the door. He is the entrance point. If if you put... um, your trust in the Lord by faith coming to the cross seeing the price paid for yourself there lo and behold the stairway opens up to you're on it you're on it from there on you'll travel up it and you'll see the glory of God but you must come via the cross I said a minute ago that the only way to God is through Christ but the only way to Christ is through his cross you've got to get a hold of that too there is no other way by which you can contact Christ except through his cross that's where you deal with him in the cross there is a provision made for you as a sinner and you've got to come to him there confessing your sin and your need of him and casting yourself upon his mercy and grace and receiving the life that he gives you Receiving his lordship too. That's where you find him. Now, I hope to some extent you've got a burden of sin and guilt. Sometimes people's consciences die as they go on in this life. I hope yours isn't like that. I hope you're still alive to the fact that there's something wrong in your life and it's fundamentally wrong. It's not as though it's wrong at the edge. It's wrong in the middle. And it's going to get worse unless unless it's put right and the cross is the only place where it can be put right you may think well the cross can't heal me I mean how can how can the cross heal me well well it can come as a poor needy sinner to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ will heal you he'll heal you so as a prophet he shows you the way As a priest, he opens up the way to God. As a king, let me say that he puts you on the way and he guards you on the way. And here's where the angels of God come in, ministering to you constantly between heaven and earth. Now this is a 
a wonderful ministry. Jacob saw that there were many of them. Some people speak of a guardian angel, but you have more than one. More than one. And not only are they constant, uh, are, there, are there many of them, but they're constantly ministering. As one fulfills his commission, another is receiving a commission. And as the psalmist says, they encamp around us. Now, I, I don't honestly know for myself, personally, to be honest, I, I am not sure I've been aware at any point of the ministry of an angel. I know others who have, and have no reason to doubt them. Sometimes people have detected the presence of angels at a believer's deathbed. I've no reason to doubt that. In fact, I've every reason to believe it. Because the scriptures tell us that the souls of believers are accompanied by angels as they ascend into heaven. And I suppose at a believer's deathbed, the veil between heaven and earth is at its thinnest. And it would not surprise me if God sometimes permits their ministry to be noticed. Sometimes people have been aware of a a singing that, that can't be traced to anything around them. Or a presence, things of that kind. The chariot of fire that accompanied Elijah into glory wasn't unique. The only thing that was unique about it was the fact that it was visible. It doesn't mean it's not there for every believer. The fact is that the ministry of angels sometimes is, is only seen by those who really need to see it. Do you remember that incident from the life of Elisha when <coughs> himself and his servant were surrounded by the Syrian army and uh, Elisha's servant was panicking? And Elisha was in perfect peace. It's the peace that God's people sometimes have in the most mysterious situations. And uh, Elisha said, he prayed quickly to God and said, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And suddenly the servant became aware of the legions of God's angels encircling them, vastly outnumbering the Syrian army that was encircling them at the time. Did Elisha see them? Probably not. Why not? Because he didn't need to. He, he believed they were there. As Jesus said, you've seen therefore you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, but yet have believed. And I believe that these angels of God are with you and they're with me, and I don't think I need to see them. If in God's will I get to see them one day, so be it. It'll be because my faith needs it. But they're there. Sometimes controlling fire, hail, clouds, wind and snow. After all, the word angel means messengers. And God's messengers can come to you in lots of ways. When the ravens came to feed Elijah, bringing meat from Ahab's table. That's a, that's a message. That's an angelic ministry. Who would have thought a raven could be an angel? But angels can come in many forms. When a minister feeds you the word, is he not an angel? When Abigail came to David, David was going to wreak revenge on somebody who was mistreating himself and his men. 
And that man's wife came and pled with David and gave David a perspective on what God was doing in a horrible situation in his life. And David said, Blessed be God who sent you today to meet me. She was an angel. I don't mean really. But, but yes, really. She was a messenger from God. And whether or not you've experienced angels like that, I mean real angels, take your time, especially as you get older in the Christian life, and there are many of you here who are well on in the Christian life, and older than me too, as God maybe takes away some opportunities perhaps to serve in the way that we're used to, or uh, take time on your own to reflect and to think back and to praise God for helps that you got. Helps. And if you think about them, you, you'll get there all right. And these are constant ministrations up and down from God for your needy soul. Let me just say in closing, and I've gone on too long. Last of all, as king, he doesn't just protect us on the journey like he protected Jacob, but he at last brings us into glory. One day we'll just simply ascend this stairway, not by faith, not going up without prayers to God and receiving God's blessing, but one day we'll simply ascend it because Christ will take us home into an open heaven that is full of the glory of God to be forever with the Lord. Well then, Nathaniel, truly I am saying to you that from now on, if you believe, you will see my glory as a mediator linking heaven and earth. And if you ascend by faith in me, you will have a new fellowship with me and with my Father, and will experience an ongoing life of spiritual preservation and blessing. And at last, by me, you will ascend an open door in heaven to be forever with the Lord. May that be true of you and of me. The cross is the door, open it by faith. Let us pray. O Lord, we bless you for a full and rich provision in the gospel. And we pray for grace to understand these things and to hear the call upon our own lives, to recognize the brevity of time and the urgency of closing in with Christ. For Jesus of Nazareth passeth by And like Nathaniel, may we discover who he is and the blessings that he brings. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (laughs) The last singing from God's word is in Psalm 118. Psalm 118. In verse 17, here's someone who expects to die, but lo and behold, he's actually going to live. I shall not die, but live, 
And I shall the works of God discover. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The Lord hath me chastised sore, but not to death given over. Far from it. Set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness. Then will I enter into them. And I, the Lord, will bless. Let's sing 17 to 23. And we stand to sing. <clears throat> I shall not die